Tim Weisberg and Matt Costner. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa is along. And science advisor Matt Moniz, not with us physically in the studio, because he is, uh, as they say in the biz, on location. He is uh, out in Kentucky with uh, some interesting plans uh, coming up for this week. So we will check in with him uh, actually right now if we want to just bring him up there on the phone. Are you there, Matt? Hey, what's happening, guys? Hey, what's going on? Not much. Just hanging out here in Fort Knox, Kentucky, right outside of Louisville, getting ready to uh, do some investigation at Waverly Hills. And for those uh, who missed the episode of Ghost Hunters that started off the back nine of season two, Waverly Hills is an old sanatorium out there in in Louisville where uh, there's, you know, just an incredible amount of activity uh, on record, so much so that they actually have an official website for Waverly Hills that actually recognizes some of the EVPs they've captured out there. Correct. And and also, if you missed that episode, uh, as I found out this afternoon, here's here's an odd coincidence. Uh, a little bit of synchronicity here. The Sci-Fi Channel website, sci-fi.com slash ghosthunters, that's the site for the show. They've been putting up a, an episode each week that you can watch for free, and they have the Waverly Hills episode up there for free, so you can watch the entire thing from your computer if you missed it. So a little opportunity to see uh, some of the things that uh, Matt's hoping to experience out there. If all goes well. And why don't you uh, tell everybody what kind of equipment you brought out there. I brought a couple of sets of digital uh, voice recorders. I have two tri-field EMF detectors, series of digital cameras, um, a couple of other small low-tech items. And one of the things I'm trying to work out right now while I'm here at Fort Knox is borrowing a FLIR system from an M1A1 Abrams tank. And that would be uh, quite an interesting tool. Uh, do you think there's any paranormal investigation group that's actually used one of those in an investigation? Not unless they have over $100,000 to buy one. And well, number two, you can't buy them. It's a military grade and is reserved only for the military. I say you'd have to have some sort of uh, military clearance to be able to do so. Uh, well, my friend that I'm down here to pick up is being released from the military, and uh, he still has access to some of the materials and friends down here, so... Well, I guess he's honorably we're trying to work out. Honorably discharged, then I'd assume. Oh yeah, after twenty <laughs> years, yeah, he was a tank instructor here at the base. So, and and he's going to be going with you on the investigation. Correct. Is he a big believer in the paranormal, or is he a skeptic? Uh, he's a big fan of the uh, show Ghost Hunters, and uh, he's actually been with me on a couple of other little things when uh, we were younger. So uh, hopefully you capture some stuff. And, and, of course, we'll talk about it next week uh, when you'll be back in the studio with us and any evidence that you do capture we'll discuss on the show then. But I think we should bring up uh, right now some of the 
evidence that we captured again last week. And, you know, we keep saying this. We, we almost feel bad about this because every time we go out to Ellis Bowl Cemetery, we seem to capture some sort of EVP. And, it's, you know, there's groups yep. that go out there all the time and, and, and don't get anything. And the two times we've gone, we've gotten something each time. So, uh, actually, it was, it was Matt Moniz who actually captured something uh, last week. So why don't you give everybody, like, a brief, you know, rundown of, of what was actually going on uh, when you captured it. All right. Um, what had happened as we were out there, uh, you were standing a couple of headstone rows ahead of us and then walked off to a, a, the, uh, the other part of the cemetery. Matt had asked me about a particular symbol that was on one of the headstones. Uh, so he asked me to come over and take a look at it, and it was a uh, triangle with a basically a star in the middle of it, uh, or a sun, which I recognize to be one of the uh, Masonic uh, symbols. It's also used in the uh, Illuminati as well, which happened to be a rival back then. But uh, Matt... Uh, asked me about it, and I was like, I said the word Masonic, and he asked, like, well, is uh, is this guy a Freemason? And I said, well, I asked, are you a Freemason? And of course, a few seconds oh, after that, don't, don't, don't say, don't say what they said. Neither Matt nor I could hear. Don't say what they said. I've got a train going by, so you guys are gonna have to bear with me. No, that's okay. That, that's the, that's life on a military base. But we we don't want to tell them what they said because we're gonna play the EVP for them. Sure, sure. Well, you can just bring Matt's... Well, we'll just pot him down for a second. Matt, why don't you play that EVP that was captured? This is on a digital voice recorder uh, captured at the Ellis Bowl Cemetery last Saturday night. You're going to hear Matt Costa speak first, then Matt Moniz, and then listen carefully after that. Are you a Freemason? Very, very slow down there. You could hear it. Uh, very, very low. I don't know if you want to try that again, Matt. Or, uh, Are you a Freemason? They're very at, at the very end. Something is captured, and. Uh, Matt had two. Matt Moniz had two digital recorders with him, and, and hopefully that train has gone by. We can bring him back up there. Uh, Matt had two digital recorders with him side by side, and uh, he was using them to try to you know make sure that if he captured anything, that he could uh, verify it on both. Uh, how's that, Matt? Is the train gone by? Uh, the last cars are going by right now. Okay. Well, we were talking about how you had two digital recorders out there with you. And uh, hoping to, you know, you, you made the assumption that you would capture something on one, but not on right. the other. Correct. As a way to verify. I to one at that time. It, it, I was just happy that I found that one. And you wanted to just verify that there was, if you captured on one and not the other. Is that the longest train in the world, by the way? It seems like it. It's, the, it's military transport, I think. That's why. Around here, we're used to trash trains that are like five or six cars. But uh, so he brought the two recorders to try to, you know, if he captured anything, it would appear on one and not the other as proof that nothing was said out loud. But in paranormal investigating, things that you expect to happen aren't what always happen. And uh, we can. And so what happened is he actually had the two recorders and he captured it on both. So, and also, at the same time, Matt Costa, you were standing next to him with, uh, what, what did you have for equipment? I had an analog tape recorder. 
And, and what did you find on yours upon further review? Um, it's, it seemed like in the same spot that Matt Moniz found something, I found a, uh, it sounded like something like a grunt or a, not exactly sure what it was, but there was definitely a noise that was at the same time in the same place as Matt Moniz's. It, it was a, a quicker paced noise, but again, it was in the same type of vocal range. Uh, and, and we'll have that EVP for you next week. We're in the process of trying to get that cleaned up. But I was messing around with the three distinct EVP files from the three different recorders earlier in the week, and I tried syncing them all up as a way to you know, just try to verify if we were right in our assumption that the noises happened at the same time. And sure enough, they do. They all coincide. One of them is a little bit more sped up, but Matt said that had to do with the recording speed of one of his digital recorders. And but uh, Right. I had... Uh one set for high quality recording, the other set for super play in the digital. And, and that one, yeah, one records uh, at a certain bit rate, whereas in on the other settings is set for a much faster, much more uh, distinct recording rate. And it was really like a very, very minute difference, but uh, you know enough that it was noticeable uh, in comparison. But we're going to try to sync all three of them up for next week and have them all cleaned up. We do have a cleaned up version of what we just played for you, uh, courtesy of our friends at New England Paranormal Video Research Group. I believe they're going to post it on their website, nepvrg.com. We'll also have it on SpookySouthCoast.com during the week so that you can uh, analyze it yourself. But here is the cleaned up version, and again, they cut out some of the some of the space in the middle. So you'll hear Matt Moniz ask a question, and then you want to listen right after that. It moves really quick. Are you a Freemason? One more time, one more time. Are you a Freemason? So there you go. Uh, we get Freemason out of that. I mean, I'd like to say, you know, that's what we're hearing, but that's what it is. There's no debating that. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah. And and, uh, and Matt from NEPVRG, um, I didn't tell him what I thought we heard, and when he emailed me back, he was like, I hear Freemason loud and clear. So the... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I was at Capers last night, uh, their open meeting, and uh, a dozen people went through listening to it, and they all heard the same thing. And it, Because it's so clear. I mean, there's, there's no way that it could be anything else now. But on Matt Costa's analog version, you can't make out a word. It sounds almost like a what or maybe a yes. But it's in the same vocal range, and, and Matt from NEPVRG stated that uh, it's the the hertz range that it's in would actually be one that would be for a uh, a woman's voice, but the voice uh, he said it's the same range as his wife's voice, but the you know the tone of the voice is so obviously deep and it's so obviously a male voice that it's just it doesn't seem to sync up with what it should be, and at the same time uh, to get it, to make it even weirder, and and as Matt Moniz discussed with us last week. Uh, it, to get a stereo recording of an EVP is crazy, but to have it on three is really ridiculous. And, and the strangest part about it is that Matt Costa's analog recording, where you can't make out the word, is actually the louder version. If you if you were to hear it, which you will next week, it's almost like uh, the noise is right up against the microphone of the recorder. It's like, you know, the same thing happens. It's like, like that, real fast. But on the further away recordings, you get it, clear as day, which, you know, basic fundamentals of sound, you know, the closer you are to the microphone, the clearer it should be, and you know, unless it's right up against it like I just did, but, and also on Matt Costa's analog, there's a bit of a whistle, 
a whistle in, almost like a like a drawing in, and then and then. So maybe that's you know something to do with it. It's definitely interesting, and we really hope to have this all together for you next week so that you can hear it. And we'll post it up on the website because you know anything that we capture is certainly out there. You know, for the public to to listen to, to dissect, to critique, and as long as they get back to us and let us know what they think, you know, we welcome you. There's already some evidence on our website now, SpookySouthCoast.com. Go to the message board, uh, find the room marked "Share Your Evidence," and you can find some cool stuff there to check out. Also, on our message board, you can get in touch with us in the live chat room with any questions you might have tonight for our special guests. Rick White and Linda Thornton of Willing Hearts Productions. They created the first film of the Bell Witch Haunting. Uh, this is the story that is the basis for the movie An American Haunting that's in theaters now. We're going to talk to them about their film, about the legend of the Bell Witch, and about some of the discrepancies in An American Haunting. There's some, some things brought forth in the new movie that really clash with the legend of the Bell Witch and that really you know, don't really sync up with some of the history because this is the only case in u.s history where it's actually documented that a spirit killed a man there is vast amounts of testimony vast amounts of you know not photographic evidence not audio evidence because this happened back in 1818 but there is you know a lot of uh testimony from respected people uh, who experience this phenomena so we're going to take a break and when we come back on the other side we'll have rick white and linda thornton from the bell witch haunting film and you can join us at any time with your stories, questions, thoughts about the paranormal. 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and online SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be right back. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. <laughs> Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa in the studio. We have Matt Moniz down in Kentucky getting ready to investigate Waverly Hills later on this week. And joining us on the phone line, we have Rick White and Linda Thornton of Willing Hearts Productions. They created the first film on the Bell Witch Haunting, uh, thebellwitchhaunting.com, if you want to check out the website for that film. Uh, Willing Hearts is located in Nashville, Tennessee, established in 2000. The Bell Witch Haunting was based on one of America's most well-known true ghost hauntings. The film was picked up by Shoreline Entertainment and has been distributed throughout the world. They've also uh, had a few other uh, projects coming out lately. Nightmares from the Mind of Poe, a suspense horror titled Squeaky, and uh, a drama about a songwriter whose drug addiction leads him down a self-destructive path tentatively titled Redemption, and uh, also... Very interesting here, which we'll get into a little bit later on. They have a Bell Witch documentary coming out next month where they look at the uh, the Bell Witch legend and the film An American Haunting, and they look in search of the truth. So, Rick and Linda, thank you for joining us here on Spooky South Coast. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. And when we first heard about the, the Bell Witch case, uh, and we did a little bit of research, we went to the website run by Pat Fitzhugh, thebellwitch.org, uh-huh. which is pretty much, you know, if you Google the Bell Witch, you end up right on that site. Right. And it was his praise of your film 
that really you know drew my interest because here's a guy that's researched every possible nook and cranny of the story, and he said that your film is you know the definitive tale. Yes. Yeah, he's been very supportive and uh, came to the the screening when we had the initial uh, premiere. Uh, uh, premiere, and um, we we try to stick as much to the original book and tell the story the way that people that were there had. Um, given the facts to Ingram when he wrote the original book, and also Richard Bell's uh, manuscript, uh, Our Family Trouble, which was, he was one of John Bell's sons. So we tried to stick as much to the story as we possibly could. And, gr- and you grew up uh, pretty close to where all this took place. That's correct. We, I grew up in Nashville, and uh, the haunting actually took place in Robertson County in a, a town now called uh, Adams, which is probably about 30 minutes north of Nashville. And so you must have been made aware of all the stories growing up. Uh, how did you determine what was, you know, fact and what had just become myth and legend? Well, you hear a lot of tales growing up, you know, things like if you say the bell which doesn't exist while well, turning around, it will appear in a mirror and just all kinds of myths like that and strange stories. Uh, basically, I have always been fascinated with the bell witch. I um, went to a play when I was in elementary school uh, on the Bell Witch and uh, became fascinated with it. And when I got in college and was studying script writing, uh, started doing research and always thought it would be a fabulous movie. And so the, what we foretell is based on the book, the original book, uh, Ingram was a reporter who interviewed several people who had either experienced the phenomena or knew people who did. Here in the local area, he was a reporter in Clarksville, which is very close to Adams, mm-hmm. which later became his book along with Richard Bell's uh, account. And so that's what uh, I wrote a play based on the book, which was extremely uh, close to the book, and then from that evolved the movie project. But when you when you read the book, uh, Ingram's original book, you, you kind of learn, um, you know, what's fact and what's not from that. And what exactly is fact of the case? Let's try to, you know, give people a synopsis of actually what went on in case they're not familiar with the story. Well, it was a haunting that happened over a four-year period from 1817 to 1821. John Bell and his family had moved to uh, Robinson County from North Carolina and had been settled there for several years when... One day they were hunting and they saw a strange-looking animal that was described as having the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. And they shot it, and when they went to where the animal was, it was gone. And that night they started having banging noises on the outside of their house. And they'd go outside and there would be nothing there. And this started happening every night, and it escalated. Then the noises started happening in the house and there would be a a scratching or gnawing sound on the bed, and they would light a candle uh, in the middle of the night, and there would be nothing there. And they they would hear sounds like furniture being dragged or chains being dragged across the floor. They'd get up, and there'd be nothing there. They'd check in the morning. There'd be no signs of any rats or any kind of activity or reason for the noises. Uh, then the children started being uh, attacked. Their, their covers would be pulled off the bed. Their hair would be pulled. They'd be pinched in the middle of the night. And it evolved till it started actually speaking. They heard, uh, like, moaning sounds at first, and the sound of it sounded like a woman crying. And then it evolved to it actually had a voice and would have conversations with people. 
And, of course, this caused an enormous amount of uh, fascination once the Bells actually told the community what was going on. And people would come to the Bells' house. This went on for years and would actually sit and have conversations and would experience the phenomenon. And the spirit said it would not leave until it saw John Bell dead. And the last uh, two or three years, it would torment him. And his health declined. And uh, one morning, they found him dead with a vial of medicine next to his bed that they didn't know where it came from. They put some of it on the tongue of their cat, and the cat instantly had spasms and died. And the spirit spoke up and said it had gave it to John last night and put an end to him. The next day, he died. The spirit supposedly came to the funeral, and there were hundreds of people there that experienced it, and they heard the spirit laughing and, and uh, singing brawny drinking songs. And the spirit also seemed to be against their younger daughter, Betsy Bell, marrying Joshua Gardner, who was her fiancé, and would harass them and would attack uh, Betsy and would tell her she wasn't going to marry Joshua. When asked who the spirit was, it would... Uh, give several different answers, but it would never actually tell who it was or why it was there, just that uh, it would see John Bell dead and that Betsy would never marry Joshua Gardner. And it accomplished its two goals, and then it left shortly after that. And that's what's the most interesting part of the case is that, you know, there was direct uh, questioning of the spirit because the spirit was, you know, engaged in conversation. And uh, the character that you play in the film, uh, James Johnson, uh, actually commands the spirit in the name of God to to say who it is. Right. And that was one of the things that was taken directly out of, there are a few things that was taken uh, directly out of out of the book, out of Ingram's book, the account of supposedly what really happened. And James Johnston was John Bell's best friend. And he was the first person that they confided in, the Bells. For almost a year, they wouldn't tell anybody. Uh, this was soon, obviously, after the Salem witch trials, and they were afraid of what would happen in the community if the word got out. And they finally went to James Johnson, who was a very spiritual man, was a spiritual leader in the area, and confided in him. Himself and his wife spent the night to see if they could tell what was causing the, the strange noises. And that night, uh, the spirit uh, did all kinds of bizarre things and started pulling Betsy's hair. And, you know, he commanded in the name of the Lord, tell us who you are and what you want. And, and it, you know, at that time, wasn't speaking and it didn't respond. And, and we do need to clarify for those uh, unaware, the term witch doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the, a human that practices witchcraft. I mean, back in those times, it was anything paranormal was deemed witchery. Right, exactly. And that was the fear that they had was that, you know, they would be persecuted in the, the community. And John Bell was a very righteous and they were a very religious family and would often have revivals over at his house. And uh, so most of the people in the community um, were very supportive of John. Uh, there was some, a lot of, you know, gossip and, and things as there would be uh, with something like that happening at someone's home. So, uh, but the, overall, the community uh, appears from what we've read was very supportive of well, John. There seems there seems to be gossiping, but uh, at the same time, though, they were very well respected pillars of the community. Right. Where when they heard about it, it was almost like you know we have to go see it for ourselves because exactly. they wouldn't just make this up. Well, exactly, and also you, you know the, the it wasn't just the bells. There were a lot of prominent people at the time that experienced it who uh, testified and and did interviews. Uh, there were newspaper reporters who came. There were detectives who came. Uh, John Bell's three closest friends were all ministers. And they experienced the phenomena over and over. Um, there was a lot of very prominent people in the community who experienced this. Uh, supposedly Andrew Jackson, 
who knew the Bells, two of his John Bell sons, fought with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. And Andrew Jackson and his entourage were supposed to have went to the, the Bell's farm, uh, gone to the Bell's farm to, to try to help and find out what was going on there. And were going to stay several days. And that night they were harassed, and one of the men was attacked viciously. They left it at dawn the next day, and supposedly Andrew Jackson was quoted as saying, I'd rather face the whole British Army than the Bell Witch again. So, you know, that's pretty strong support. Absolutely. And I think we have a call here on the line that maybe our science advisory dropped off. Let's see. Good evening, on Spooky South Coast. Hi. How you doing? I just want to tell you, I enjoy the show very much. Thank you. You're welcome. And, uh, well, hello to everybody. And uh, Hi. I just want to say, I, I'm the one who uh, emailed you about um, the incident on Cove Street many years ago. Yes. Um, and uh, it was, well, as I said in the email, that was uh, a rough thing they all went through. This, this gentleman actually had, uh, members of his family were actually under the spell of a witch. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, my mother really, I couldn't really get it out of her. I mean, it was a hard thing for her to talk about. And she never, I don't remember all my life her ever going back on Cove Street. Well, it, a, it's yeah. interesting that you called in tonight because what happened to your family actually closely parallels, parallels what uh, especially Betsy Bell went through where, you know, mysterious, you know, hittings, slappings, pinchings, things that were unseen. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the possibilities that we'll get into in, in a little bit with, with uh, Rick and Linda, one of the possibilities of how the spirit came about is that it actually could have been, you know, a curse placed on the Bell family by a quote-unquote witch. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they never really had any incident with her, uh, with her prior to that. It's just that um, she would always watch... Um, my uh, aunt who had blonde hair, blue eyes, and she was like fascinated with her, and she wouldn't take her eyes off her, and um, she would always look at her, and she—they couldn't tell what she was saying. She'd mumble something, and she'd be, you know, making some kind of gestures. And my aunt, she would never talk about it. I could never get anything about it out of her. She'd never mention it, and she still actually had scars on her uh, from the, the hitting. Well, I, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, she probably just wanted to push it out of her mind. I mean, it just was. I mean, it was just the way they, just, you know, it was described. It just, it was, you know, they were they were trying to stop it. I mean, they were all covering her and just by the. I can imagine the sight. You know what I mean? By a kerosene lamp, you see a shadow, and here come, you know, it's just coming down with the cane or whatever she was holding it. Well, if you get a copy of the Bell Witch Haunting on DVD, I mean, you can see some of the the scenes from that film. It's probably quite similar to what your aunt went through. Yeah, okay. I mean, I just, you know, I try to... They didn't really want to say too much when I was younger, but then as I got older, you know I mean, I asked. They all had, they all said the exact same story. I mean, the ones that were still here, they just... What year did that take place? Oh, I, it was on the 30s sometime. Um, I would say around 33, 34, um, around there somewhere. Uh, well, you know, Betsy Bell moved to Mississippi... And uh, it was recorded there that, uh, and she was an older woman at this time, that she would never sleep alone, that she would sleep uh, on the wall side of the bed, mm-hmm. but she never wanted to sleep alone. So, you know, um, these things affect people, you know, and, and, and we still to this day don't know exactly. I mean, just from our research, we don't know exactly what this entity or what this it was, but it definitely there was something going on, and it affects people. 
and it affected you know this whole family for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean they whatever the you know people make the mistake is I used to talk to a lot of the elderly people and they all it seems like they had certain people in I'd say the neighborhood many years ago pinpointed not a ton of them but they would like know who to stay away from there'd be things about them you know not a prejudice thing I'm talking about just that they yeah. know something was up they even the plants that grew in their garden certain ones well just, in, in those days too people paid more attention to their neighbors they knew their neighbors there was more of a sense of community these days with the internet and television and we just hold ourselves up in our homes and don't get to know the people around us right and they, they weren't you know another mistake they said well they they weren't um what you call they weren't the satanists or devil worshippers mm-hmm. it was just something altogether you know just old world black magic probably exactly. came over from overseas uh, from europe when when people immigrated over as they were you gotta very... remember that the revivals the religious revivals were going on mm-hmm. which oh. is right after the they were very very evil i mean they if they had it in for you in other words i mean kids i mean no matter well what uh, i don't want to take too much time uh but they uh would say also that a lot of disappearance of children especially in the older countries, mm-hmm. would be um, usually like a retarded person would get blamed for it. I mean, yeah, they, they just found out too late that, it, you know what I mean, they, they'd all, it all, they like set up different people so they could get away. A lot of children, believe it or not, did disappear. Uh, the older, you know, I'm talking about Portugal, Spain, a lot of the older, um, younger children did disappear. Well, we'll, we'll have to uh, we'll have to get into that some other time. But we do thank you for checking in, and we we are hoping that other people will check in with any similar stories. So, thank you for sharing your family's tale with us. Yeah, welcome. Like I said, uh, I enjoy the show very much, and uh, thank you for what you're doing. It's a good show. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Bye bye. And and Rick and Linda, that was a gentleman who shared his uh, family's personal story with us last week via email because he didn't feel comfortable enough to call in and discuss it with us. And then, you know, when we talked about it a bit and he felt a little bit better and realized, hey, you know, it's not crazy to have this type of thing. So, um, Well, you know that uh, the, the Bells themselves, when the phenomena ended, when uh, after John Bell died, the spirit came less and less often, and then one day it said it was leaving. It wouldn't. It, it, well, supposedly it said it was leaving. Would be back in seven seven years. Seven years later, it supposedly came back for like two weeks, and mostly visited John Jr. and gave a lot of spiritual information and predictions about the future. That particular story comes in a later book by John. I mean by uh, uh, Charles Bailey Bell and was not in the original Ingram manuscript. So that's not as documented as the original haunting. And then supposedly the spirit was going to come back 107 years later, which would have been in the 1930s, and there's no documentation of that actually happening. But the Bell family was so traumatized that after the spirit left, they wouldn't speak of it anymore because they were afraid it would cause it to come back. And for generations, the Bells wouldn't talk about it. Uh, that's the reason there was no book actually published until the eight, uh, 1890s. The original articles were written in the 1870s in the Clarksville newspaper in the 1880s. And when Richard Bell gave Ingram his diary, uh, he said that he could not publish it until everyone from the, the original family was deceased. 
and when the final child died, that's when the um, the book and the manuscript from Richard Bell was published. And they were so afraid to talk about it that uh, they didn't want anything published or mentioned while they were still alive because they were afraid it would come back even 50 years later. And, and I'm sure that it would have, too. And uh, we, we'll get into some of this uh, stuff. I, de- I definitely want to talk a little bit more about when the Spirit came back and started making some of those predictions. We can get into that a little bit later. And we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we can talk about some of the theories about how this Spirit came to haunt the Bell family, what its intent actually was, and uh, who, if anyone, was pulling the strings. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. That's the work of the silent assassin, Matt Costa, producer extraordinaire. You give him a subject matter, he's going to come up with some crazy bumpers for you. Matt, we're going to have to get like all the rights and clearances to put out a CD of some of these. Stuff's crazy. All right, well, we're going to jump back into the discussion with our guests, Rick White and Linda Thornton. Uh, Rick is the director and writer, and Linda is the producer of the film The Bell Witch Haunting, which uh, is the first film based on the story of the Bell Witch Haunting that took place in the... 1817 to 1821 range, uh, which is now the subject of the film An American Haunting, which we will discuss in a little bit, because uh, we all have some pretty interesting thoughts and opinions on that film. But uh, and R- Rick and Linda, uh, one of the things that is really interesting is the fact that there is no real understanding of why the spirit targeted the Bell family. We only know what its intent was. We don't know you know, how it came about. You know, in a lot of these cases, you'll hear a history of activity in a home or somebody passed away or a curse, but there's so many different possibilities and, and rumored suggestions that there's right. no, no way to really tell, you know, how this all came about. Uh, that's true. The spirit would answer most questions asked of it except why are you here and why are you doing these things. And there was the spirit actually never gave a reason why it tormented John or Betsy so, and why it hated John Bell or appeared to hate John Bell. Uh, and there are there are numerous theories. Uh, the Bells actually their property where their house was built was on an ancient Indian burial ground, uh, and there are some people who actually believe it was several different entities and not just one because it had different personalities and at times would have different voices. And, um, you know, there's theories. At the time, a lot of people believe Kate Batts, who was a strange neighbor, uh, was responsible uh, for it. Uh, they thought that she was maybe in the black magic. She was a very bizarre acting woman and had a dispute with John Bell and supposedly had uttered one day w- words that sound like she's putting a curse on him. Mm-hmm. And it was shortly after that that the activity started. Um, but even before that, the, uh, the overseer uh, from North Carolina? Yeah, that, that's one of the theories that, you know, supposedly uh, they had killed a slave in North Carolina and the slaves had, had John put, Bell did. Had put a, a curse 
on, on the bells, uh, but that there's no proof or foundation of that. And uh, you know, there, there's even rumors or throughout the years have been different speculations. Uh, speculations that John Bell had tied up Kate Batts and killed her, and uh, that was her, she was haunting him. But Kate was alive far after uh, John passed away. So you know, people come up with theories and ideas and rumors, and, but nobody at the time when people were actually there, intelligent people were going through the phenomena over four years, nobody could come up with a reasonable explanation as to why it was happening. And, you know, nobody's going to be able to now, 200 years later. And, and another theory is uh, we talked about how Betsy Bell was enamored with uh, Joshua Gardner, her classmate, friend, and neighbor, and that they had, uh, I guess, got engaged at one point, but the spirit right. was, you know, repeatedly warning Betsy not to marry Joshua. Uh, but at the same time, her school teacher Richard Powell uh, had a serious interest in her. Actually, ended up marrying her once her and uh, and Joshua broke it off. That's correct. And and, and there was uh, even at the time there were some people who um, questioned about Richard Powell. Uh, there was at least one person who was interviewed later for the, the Ingram book. Uh, supposedly, the children one day um, the the schoolhouse was locked and they heard Powell. Speaking in a strange language, and they thought he was he was doing some kind of black magic. Mm. Uh, but you know, he was a very learned man, and uh, he spoke Latin in different languages. So you know that that was the explanation that was given was he was speaking a different language, and so um, that's an interesting theory. But you know, and, and it's even been said that he was a ventriloquist. But I don't know that he was in the room with other people when this was happening. And I, I think, think it would have been very hard to pull that off. And a lot of these things that happened, most of the things that happened, uh, Richard Powell was not even there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oftentimes they would happen at other people's homes uh, other than the Bell's house. So I think that would have been, I think it would have been pretty much impossible for any individual or, or group of individuals to have pulled this phenomenon off for so long uh, with so many people that. Uh, it involved and uh, were there and were present when things were happening. Uh, well, and, and you know, Richard Powell, uh, in Ingram's book, he kind of alludes to it that, you know, or he, he asked the question, you know, was this uh, caused by human or, you know, a spiritual uh, activity? And um, there's several, there's been several people that have written articles. Uh, uh, there's a gentleman from New Orleans, uh, Jeff Hockenheimer, that, you know, he, he just kind of elaborates a little bit more. But again, it's speculation on that. Um, you know, uh, Richard Powell um, knew of the additions that had been uh, built onto the house that he could have hid in these walls and, uh, you know, and, and, and the throwing of the voice and, and all. Well, we're going to kind of cover some of this in our documentary mm-hmm. because we're going to, we're just going to pose the question to people, you know, um, you know, could this have been, you know, uh, by a human person? But then if, 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 certain things happen, how could that have, you know, been the case? And even Tim Henson, he's a um, historian out in Adams, um, and boy, if anybody wants to know anything new, some new information, new discoveries, that he he is a researcher, and he's uh, finding new things out daily uh, by going uh, back into church records, uh, county, state records, but, you know, he's saying that, you know, John Bell, they were godly people back then. But he was a very stern um, and shrewd businessman. So there's going to there's people that back then and Adams that that 
you know, uh, could have, because he was a shrewd businessman, you know, you get on odds with neighbors and so forth. Exactly, so, you know, yeah. there's, there's so many different aspects to this, you know, uh, and, and, and the biggest thing that uh, the man that wrote the book, The American Haunting, uh, took was the, you know, who was John Bell? You know, his character is being, you know, uh, pretty much attacked or, or you know, um, in, a, in a negative way. Um, and But there's not any, you know, good... Um, there's not proof. Yeah, no proof. And, you know, that's, that's very unfortunate because then people are going to remember, you know, this whole incident by that movie which is you know unfortunate but uh that came out of the playboy magazine uh in november of 1968 where a doctor said that you know young girls and their teens you know bring this kind of uh paranormal thing you know mm-hmm. uh, yeah so you know but that's speculative i mean we could all come up with different ideas couldn't we yeah, I mean that's that's a a, a common belief uh, known as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, and that's something that you know I think in the second hour we'll get into a little bit more of some of the discrepancies in the American Haunting film, that telling of the story, and just uh, kind of the bastardization of some of the facts actually to fit you know their theory their plot. But we'll we'll get into all that. I mean I, I want to present to people as much as we can what we know about the bells, and one thing that I greatly enjoyed about your film is that you presented the bells as a family it wasn't all just about the phenomena that was going on we got to know who they were we got to know you know that the one of the younger sons Drury was a a a bit of a prankster uh so it kind of set the tone of you know that when there's little rappings happening little knockings you know there's all these different types of possibilities and then we see the whole family come together once they're actually under siege well that was one of the things that struck me in reading the original book of people who were there in the accounts of people who experienced the phenomena was the of course extraordinary thing that was happening to them but also the fact that the community rallied around John Bell uh, and that he was supported you know there were there were neighbors and there were friends that were over to his house almost nightly uh, there were uh, friends who took uh, the children at times uh, and, and did things to support and would help the bells um, he was excommunicated from the church at one point and they would the neighbors would come over to his house and they would have prayer time and would have um, revivals and you know the, the the family as a whole seemed to grow stronger as a unit together in in the community that the neighbors did and so that was other than telling this amazing ghost story i also wanted we wanted to be sure to to show that side of these people and their character and you know there was never anything uh, John Bell was known as a, 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 a very aggressive businessman, but he was very liked in the community from what people said about him and was a very upright man. It was very important to him what the community thought about him. And so there's never been anything, even the spirit never said, uh, you know, while it cursed at John Bell and said it would see him dead, never spoke anything negative about his character. It never gave any reasoning for why. Uh, it was attacking him. And there was never anything in the community uh, that was against his character. And so, uh, um, 
you know, there's no there's no foundation to think that there was something that John Bell did to cause this, or anybody in the family for that. You know, it, this was something that happened to this family. They were clearly just victims, but that's right. One thing too that's interesting about your film is, in addition to being a ghost story, as you said, it's also a a period piece of a time in American history that isn't right. covered in a lot of films. You know, the the post revolutionary early days of America. Right. You know, pre Civil War, and that's one of the things that we wanted to to accomplish. You know, is, is to make people feel what what it actually would have been like back then. Uh, we shot it with a lot of low candlelight because uh, the spirit usually came in the middle of the night. You know, it was dark. They were out in the, the wilderness, and there was nowhere to go. And you know, what was life like for them back then as they were going through this? They couldn't switch on a light. They couldn't call a neighbor. You know. It, it's if anybody's ever gone camping and it's been pitch black outside, they will know how it would have felt, you know. And, and the great part about such authenticity is it lends itself to some pretty humorous scenes involving chamber pots. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and, and, and are those a little bit of uh, artistic license, or are those documented in the book? Uh, that, that that is artistic license. Uh, that's something that we are uh, we like to go. There's a lot of historic historic homes here in the area, and uh, Linda and I both like to go and 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 find out about the history of the area. And that's something that's always interests me because every time you go into a historic home, they always point out the chamber pipe. But nobody, you never see anybody using it or discussing it in a movie. And of course, everybody used it back then. And so I was trying to think of ways to show there were so many stories of different things the Spirit did to play pranks on people. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to actually show something with the chamber pot? And then the idea occurred to me to, to use that as some way for her to play pranks on people. So, And uh, just a little bit of a technical question. You don't have to give away the tricks of the trade if you don't want to. But uh, the one scene where the chamber pot chases Drew down the <laughs> stairs... What exactly did you use there uh, on his shoulder? Yeah. G- good. Uh, oh, uh, oh, 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 yeah. that was a, uh, a uh, Baby Ruth candy bar. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it ironically looks like the same prop from Caddyshack. It, it, it was. The, it was. I, 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 I ate half of it, and we used the other half for the, uh, for the scene. You know, it's not the first time we've actually discussed uh, excrement here on Spooky South Coast. We've we've uh, had the paranormal poop in the past before. Uh, we found uh, what we thought might have been Bigfoot dung on the top of a local landmark. So, oh boy. So, well, uh, and, and you know what? You know, uh, body um, functions and so forth played a part in this whole thing because um, you know, I, and I know that y'all know a lot more than we do about. Um, you know, if someone's possessed or if someone's been, uh, is being, um, haunted and, 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 um, the spiritual, uh, part of the, I mean, the, um, what's that called? The, well, just the activity, um, you know, how it affects the body mm-hmm. and how, uh, different spirits, uh, affect and, and so forth. So, you know, that was part of, um, and people will have to see all that when they watch the movie. Well, because, you know, you kept the realism for, for telling a ghost story, which a lot of people have a problem buying into. It's a very realistic movie, and, and you can actually feel what this family is going through. Well, and that's what we were yeah. hoping to accomplish. You know, that that's a thing. And I knew that uh, if Hollywood, when Hollywood made a story on this, that they were just going to focus on the ghost story. And most of the plays that, uh, there's been a couple other plays written, and it just, focuses totally on the ghost story but you know the the scary stuff but the, the, when you read the book the original manuscript and the stories that people tell there are probably more stories about pranks 
and the Spirit's sense of humor and also the religious things it did. It sang gospel songs all the time. It would preach sermons. It would repeat sermons. It loved to quote scripture. Uh, very bizarre behavior for something that behaves demonic at times and, you know, attacks people. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that word because uh, in the second hour, that's something I definitely want to touch upon is the similarities between this haunting, uh, the reports from this haunting, and demonic activity. Right. Right. So we will, we'll discuss that in the second hour along with other various aspects of this story, such as you know the American haunting film, how it takes and distorts and warps some of the facts and chooses which ones it wants to utilize. Uh, and also we'll talk a little bit more about the documentary that they have coming out, uh, trying to get some of the truth of this case out there because you know it really is important for people to understand this because if there's going to be a documented case about the paranormal, we have to make sure that we are giving people the exact uh, truth. So we're going to take a quick break for the CBS News. When we come back on the other side, we'll have the Week in Weird. We'll try to check in with Matt Moniz down in Kentucky again because we've got an interesting story in the Week in Weird about Waverly Hills. And then uh, after that, we'll have more with, with Rick White and Linda Thornton on the Bell Witch Haunting. So stay tuned here for more on Spooky South Coast. Back in a little bit. WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa behind the boards. How are you tonight, Matt? Doing good. All right. And uh, Matt, Matt, we were, we've been talking about the Bell Witch Haunting with Rick White and Linda Thornton, the director, writer, star, and producer of the Bell Witch Haunting, the first film about the Bell Witch case. Uh, n- now in the theaters, there's the film An American Haunting, which is based on that case. And we're going to get into the comparisons between the two uh, we're going to talk about some of the discrepancies between what American Haunting is trying to portray about the Bell family and what is actually known fact. And uh, Matt had the pleasure of joining me at the movie theater the other night. I don't know for... if it's a pleasure joining you, but... That's true. That's true. I mean, especially in the movie theater, because, uh, you know, I like to lay back and spread around and, and just take over. i got a drink over here and... No, my jacket over here, and I like to really make myself at home if I'm going to stay in a movie because you know most movies run two, two and a half hours, and this movie I think was, uh, I think the opening previews were probably longer than the film. Uh, I suppose Definitely. when you when you're gonna when you're gonna bastardize the story like that, you want to make it as quick as possible. So, Ooh. oh yeah, I'm calling them out. Yeah, absolutely. They're more than uh, the producers of an American Haunting. They're more than welcome to call us and and discuss their point of view. Uh, because we have an idea of where they got their information from from some reports we read, but we will get into all of that with Rick and Linda because I'm sure they're more versed in that than we are. But uh, overall, the film was, you know, like I said, very quick, um, and we're no Siskel and Roper or Ebor and Roper or whoever it is now. We're more like Statler and Waldorf. We complain about everything. But uh, in terms of a movie outside of the case, uh, we'll, we'll get into all of that in a bit, so... 
I wish I had uh, saved those passes we used for the Da Vinci Code, but they probably aren't accepting any passes. Anyway, let's get into something we like to call The Week in Weird. There we go. Week in Weird, our weekly look into the news stories that come across the wire that you may not have heard anywhere else. Our first story comes to us from the Manila Standard today. I wonder if they're uh, part of the South Coast Today Standard Times family of newspapers. I don't know if we have a Manila Bureau. And I'm not going to ask anybody because if, uh, if they do, they'll probably ship me over there. I'll be writing about uh, Philippine sports. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing they probably don't play American football in the Philippines, which is my area. A regional trial court judge in Malabon, who was relieved by the Supreme Court on a question of his mental condition, has asked to be reinstated to his post. In a 79-page motion for partial reconsideration, Judge Florentino Floro Jr. sought the disqualification of the six doctors who declared him mentally impaired after he admitted that he is gifted with psychic powers. Instead, he asked for the appointment of an impartial panel of doctors that should determine his true mental state. In a report to the Supreme Court, Dr. Celeste Vista cited, cited Florio's, Floro's uh, impairment in reality testing, which is an indicator of a psychotic process, uh, that he has cultural beliefs in dwarfs, psychic and paranormal phenomena, and divine gifts of healing. They've been incom- incorporated into a delusional system that has interfered and tainted his occupational and social functioning. So uh, Floro is claiming that these powers that he has... Uh, do not affect his ability to judge cases in the Supreme Court. Uh, but he has admitted that among the phenomena he has uh, participated in, he predicted the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, the failure of jailed former Filipino President Joseph Estrada, uh, the July 2001 fire that gutted the Malabon Hall of Justice, and also a few other things that he's predicted more related to the Philippines. He also claims to be friends with dwarves, and uh, that they come to him and talk to him all the time. So the the Supreme Court in the Philippines put forth a, a notion, a, a motion, uh, you know, uh, their formal documentation saying, it is improper and grandiose of him to express superiority over other judges. It is abnormal for a judge to distribute such self-serving propaganda. A judge suffering from delusion or hallucination is unfit to be one. So is he who gets into a trance while presiding at the hearing. Psychic phenomena, even assuming such exist, have no place in a judiciary duty bound to apply only positive law and, and in its absence, equitable rules and principles in resolving controversies, which is legalese for saying, we don't believe in the paranormal and it doesn't belong in the courtroom, it's not real, and it doesn't belong you know, as part of documented proof, which is interesting because of the case that we are discussing tonight. So, my long, drawn-out explanation of such. Matt Costa, save me. Discovered in a remote area of southern Turkey, five adult siblings who can walk only on all fours have been found. Born with a genetic brain abnormality, two of the sisters and one of the brothers are thought to only have walked on all fours their entire lives. The two other siblings can walk upright for short distances. The siblings' parents are closely related and have 19 children in all. The bizarre case is not a hoax, according to experts who have studied the family. The mother says all of the children when they were infants, ran around on all fours before they learned to walk. Not just ordinary crawling, these children ran around like monkeys on their hands and feet. Though the case of the four-limbed locomotion is still a bone of contention among researchers, further studies of this behavior will 
will be conducted. You know, I know some families that walk around on all fours. I know some people that walk around on their knuckles. I don't think there's anything paranormal about it. I just thought they hadn't quite evolved yet. I know people who drag their knuckles. Yeah. And don't walk them. There's, there's people who, you know, some people are, uh, let's just say they're a little bit further behind in the human race. You know, they haven't quite caught up to the rest of us yet. There's nothing wrong with that. We, we like those kinds of people, right? We like missing links. You got another one for us, Matt? Yep. Uh, FBI, FBI agents are searching a farm near the city of Detroit after what they describe as a lead of the disappearance of union boss Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa, who led the Teamsters Union in 1957 in, to 1967, disappeared in July of 1975, allegedly after meeting a mafia boss. His body has never been found, but he was last seen at a restaurant some 20 miles from the farm in the restaurant car park. On the day he disappeared, he was supposed he was supposed to be to meeting reputed mafia figure Anthony Tony Jack Guccione. Rumors have persisted that Moff, that Hoffa was murdered by the mafia to prevent him from regaining control of the union. Federal agents searching at the farm say they were acting on tip on a tip off. The FBI is using cadaver dogs, archaeologists, uh, archaeologists, and heavy construction equipment. Though nothing significant has been discovered so far, excavation work at the site is expected to last up to two weeks. This could be the final chapter in one of the U.S.'s long, longest-running crime mysteries, but it's still too soon to tell. Very interesting. You know, we mentioned Jimmy Hoffa on last week's show, jokingly suggesting that he might be buried under home plate at Shea Stadium. As we talked about baseball ghosts with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, we'll have them back on in the spring when their book comes out. And maybe by then, you know, Jimmy Hoffa will be found, and we can put to rest that vicious rumor that he's buried in Shea Stadium. I also heard he was in Giant Stadium. Giant Stadium in, as well, yes. foundation of Giant Stadium. Yeah, too. because uh, it's, it's in the Meadowlands, close by, you know, to, to where he was known to do business. So who knows? It's all over. Maybe he's not dead at all. Maybe he's alive. Maybe he wants to call into Spooky South Coast at 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, online at SpookySouthCoast.com. Get in touch with us. And even if you're not Jimmy Hoffa, feel free to do so as well. Well, it's kind of interesting that Matt Moniz, our science advisor, is not here tonight because he is in Kentucky preparing for an investigation on Monday night of the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, as we saw on Ghost Hunters. Remember, if you go to sci-fi.com slash ghost hunters, you can watch that episode for free right now as we speak. Well, after Spooky South Coast is over, of course. But we have a story coming from Byron Crawford of the Louisville Courier-Journal, who says that Waverly Hills Sanatorium uh, seems built for a haunting. The long-abandoned hospital, sometimes described as one of the scariest places on Earth, is the subject of an 83-minute documentary titled Spooked, The Ghosts of the Waverly Hills Sanatorium, that will premiere on the Sci-Fi Channel June 7th at 9. It opened in 1926 as a tuberculosis hospital. It's a four-story, 506-room structure. Hey, have fun with that, Matt Moniz. It's situated on a bluff in southwestern Jefferson County across from the Ohio River uh, on, the, on what is now the site of the Caesars Indiana Casino. Hmm. I, I wasn't aware of that. During the tuberculosis outbreak of the late 1920s, Waverly Hills treated thousands of patients. Its so-called death tunnel, a passageway more than 500 feet long designed for removing corpses from the hospital without other patients having to watch, has become one of several focal points for the filmmakers. So this film that is uh, is coming out uh, on June 7th at 9 p.m. will give you a little bit more 
of an inside look at Waverly Hills. And, of course, next week on June 3rd for the edition of Spooky South Coast, we're going to hopefully have any evidence that Matt Moniz has captured at Waverly Hills this week. Uh, he's bringing, like you said, a thermal camera that is designed to be used with tanks. So we're talking heavy duty. Uh, I think Jason and Grant from TAPS would be salivating at the prospect of, prospect of being able to use one of these. So we're going to see if he gets anything at all. We'll post it up on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, and we'll talk about it. But make sure that you tune in to the Sci-Fi Channel June 7th at 9 p.m. to learn a little bit more about Waverly Hills. So that is your Week in Weird for this week. Remember, if you have any stories for the Week in Weird that you'd like to submit, have us read on the air, you can drop them off in our message board on SpookySouthCoast.com. There's a room there where you can leave links and stories. And you can share your evidence. And right now we have a live chat room where you can post your questions for Rick White and Linda Thornton about the Bell Witch haunting. We're going to get right back into that after a brief break here on Spooky South Coast. As concocted by the silent assassin Matt Moni, uh, Matt Costa. Sorry about that. That was excellent. How, how do you work your magic like that? I don't know. It just comes to me. It just comes to you. And so will Michael Jackson very shortly oh. with a court order uh, demanding that you stop touching his music. So, hey, he's touched enough himself. Anyway, we're going to get back into the discussion about the Bell Witch haunting with Rick White and Linda Thornton, the people behind the film The Bell Witch Haunting. But first, I just want to throw it out there real quick. If you would be interested in attending that Intruders Foundation uh, seminar next weekend in New York City, Bud Hopkins will be presenting another uh, seminar where they are going to talk to Linda Cotille about her experiences, uh, uh, the book Witness that Bud Hopkins wrote. So there's going to be some new evidence in that case presented. So go to their website, intrudersfoundation.org, and you can also find a link to it on SpookySouthCoast.com. Sign up and let them know that you're coming down. And anybody that goes, we, we would like you to call in and, and let us know what happens. So, And also, if you would like to discuss the Bell Witch Haunting with us, while well, we have Rick and Linda here to discuss with you everything from their film to the new film to the legend itself, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and online at SpookySouthCoast.com. We have a couple questions up there already that we'll get to in a bit. So, Linda and Rick, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. There, hold on, there we go. Are you guys still with us? We're with you. Excellent. And uh, we discussed before the break, one of the possibilities is that this Bell Witch case is actually demonic in nature because a lot of the 
uh, phenomena that have happened kind of mimic the different stages of a demonic possession. Right. I mean, I don't know if you're uh, how familiar you are with the various stages uh, of what happens in, in a demonic case. Or uh, I've read some about it, and there actually uh, Pat Fitzhugh talks about that uh, mm-hmm. a lot in a couple of his books. And that tends to be the theory that I lean toward. Um, I, I think that when the activity started, it was definitely poltergeist-type activity, but it evolved into something else. And I, I think that the thing that makes this unique was the fact that so many people experienced it, and there's numerous things that make it unique, but uh, the different personalities it had, the fact that it had conversations with people almost nightly, which, you know, I've never heard of any other ghost story like this. So it, it evolved into something beyond uh, normal poltergeist or ghost story. It was something unique to this story that I have never uh, heard or read about before. And it, is, it, is seen, it seemed to have evolved uh, to be more connected to this world than anything else that I have heard or seen about. And, and to have intellect and understanding of this world and everything that was going on here and in the spiritual realm. And that's, I mean, if you look at it, if you break it down, like you said, the poltergeist activity that started in the beginning, the noises, the, you know, almost right up until the actual physical contact, the slapping, right. the pinching, that's kind of like the infestation stage. Right. And then this demonic entity will start to, uh, come to the family, uh, to the to the person that it's going after in the what they call the oppression stage, where it's now trying to explain itself to take on some sort of, you know, uh, identity, right? To, and and to try to lull them into a, a sense of false comfort, where it's like, hey, it's okay, you know, I'm your friend, right? And then the goal is ultimate possession, and once they can convince the person to give themselves fully to the spirit, then they have perfect possession, which is the the goal and the intent, but it, it, I noticed that, at least in, especially in your telling of the story, the family did welcome this spirit. They, they treated it almost at times like a member of the family. It wasn't, you know, oh, here comes the spirit again, everybody run and hide. I mean, they, they ha- openly had discussions with it. it. It interacted with them on a, you know, friendly basis. Well, and that, that's, that comes, again, from the original books, book and manuscript and the original accounts. And I, I don't know that they ever welcomed or they never they never enjoyed having the spirit there. Okay. I think it became something they were forced to live with. Right. Uh, the spirit had told them numerous times, if you ever leave, I'll just follow you. There's nowhere you can go to get away from me. And there were numerous stories of things that the spirit did. Uh, one time, John Jr. was on a, tr- a business trip in North Carolina. And Lucy was saying, you know, John Jr. should have been home a couple of days ago. I wonder where he's at. And then the spirit spoke up and said, would you like me to find out for you, Luce? And then uh, it, they didn't hear anything from the spirit. Uh, minutes later, the spirit came back and said, told him exactly where he was, that he was on his way home, uh, what he was doing. So, I mean, it could apparently go back and forth between time and space, and particular space, and they knew that they couldn't get away from the spirit, so it was just something they were forced to live with. Well, there's a scene in the film, too, where the spirit uh, can actually bring them conversations from the other side of the ocean. That's right. There was supposedly one case where a man was from England, was visiting his brother in Kentucky, and heard about the activity uh, and went down and spent quite a bit of time with the Bells, and the spirit took a liking to him. And one night, supposedly... uh, 
said, would you like to know what your mother and brother are doing? Because he was talking about his family. And he said, sure. And the spirit came, uh, again, was gone for a few moments, came back and was repeating in their voice what they had said. And he said it actually, you know, it sounded like them. And somehow it had captured their voice or uh, they, you know, didn't know if it was mimicking or, or how it was doing it. And that's something else that often uh, the Spirit would repeat sermons, and it would be in the voice of the ministers. But uh, that gentleman, the Englishman, left supposedly the next morning and never returned because he was kind of freaked out. He was afraid it was going to follow him to England. Very hilariously portrayed in the film, too, uh, in the deleted scenes. It uh, is funny. And the, uh, But, again, this is like the M.O., the trademark of the demonic to... Right. to Use these voices to mock, uh, to mock religion, uh, to try to use you know religion to its own means. Uh, it just it smacks of of that. But you know, to your credit in your film, you don't really you know burden people with that because that's not what the facts have shown. I mean, that's just something that we've come to understand with our understanding of demonic activity in later years. Right, and, and and you know there there are uh, uh, that was one of uh, John Junior's beliefs was that the spirit really and and at the end I have John Johnston saying that that the spirit actually never was because it appeared that it really liked Lucy and was was kind to her, uh, but John Junior's take on it was that it was and supposedly the spirit told him one time he said you know leave my sister Betsy alone and if you want to inflict punishment inflict it on me and the spirit said. You would like nothing better because you're a war hero to take her punishment, but instead I will make you watch as I abuse her. And that, and he believed that was the way that the, the spirit tortured everybody and tormented everybody, but did it in different ways. And some people did it physically, some it did it spiritually, some it did it uh, emotionally, and it was however it could get to hurt the person the most or manipulate them the most. We- and and that was why I chose some people to physically be you know like it would it would be brutal to john bell and and betsy and then it would be sweet to to lucy and what greater way to torment her and it seemed like again going back to the idea of the demonic i mean that's what it would try to do it would try to break apart the family right it would try to you know force people to take sides and it seems to me like almost like for as much of the activity that happened to both john bell and betsy bell it seemed like it was almost targeting lucy for possession because it had taken such a shine to her, right. helped her when she was sick, you know, uh, brought, her, uh, brought her hazelnuts while she was sick. Right. And, and again, you know, most spirits can't make things manifest out of thin air either. Right. I mean, that's another trick of the demonic. So, I mean, it's definitely, I think, a little bit more evil than they could understand at the time. Well, Tim, uh, you and your staff probably know more about um, things like vortex. But we were told that researchers have said that right there in Adams, in that uh, where their property is, there's a vortex. How is that connected with? Well, in the cave where yeah. actually a lot of people believe the spirit still is today. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up uh, is, is exactly what's going on with the cave because it seems to be almost like the origin point of the spirit. Uh, it's quite possible that if there is a vortex there, you know, that's like the doorway into another dimension. Now, where a vortex leads could be, you know, anything. There, Some cemeteries are believed to be vortexes that are just uh, an opening, a doorway to the next plane of existence, which allow, you know, regular human spirits to communicate. Uh, some vortexes could be a little bit stronger. And I think in this case, 
if it is something demonic in nature, then that cave would almost serve as like the gateway to hell, so to speak. We, we, we get uh, weekly uh, emails from people that have been to the cave uh, either recently or in years past, and they've taken pictures. And in the picture, they've got um, people dressed not in today's clothes, you know, in bonnets and long dresses and, and so forth. And um, uh, I don't know, did you go on the website and uh, read where Rick and I have had experiences up, up there? Mm-hmm. Uh, very bizarre area, and, and, you know, we weren't looking for something to happen to us, and um, I don't know if you wanted us to share any of that. Oh, no, absolutely. I wanted to get into that with you, the, the personal personal experiences that you've experienced on the property. Well, Rick, yours was first. Why don't you tell them about Well, I, I actually uh, I started doing research, uh, like I said, when I was in college. Uh, myself and a, a fellow screenwriter went to the cave probably about five or six times to the property into Adams and the cave. And how long ago was that? Uh, that, that was about almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you don't have to date the guy. <laughs> yeah, don't forget my joy. Uh, we, were, uh, we went to the property <laughs> one time, and there was nobody there at the house. And so we waited a little bit, and nobody came. And so we decided to walk down to the mouth of the cave uh, in case they were down there. Um, there's a gate that's always locked at the front of the cave if they're not doing tours. So we walked down there, and there was nobody down there. We stood down there and talked for a couple minutes. Then we decided to walk back up the side to see if anybody was home yet. We were walking up the, beside the cave, and we both over our shoulder heard a female voice right in our ear say, What are you doing here? And we stopped and we looked, and obviously there was nobody there. And it freaked both of us out. We scampered up the hill and back to the house, and there was still nobody there. And so we left. Uh, it was very bizarre. That was like right in our ear. And, you know, where did that come from? Well, it sounds like uh, we have a similar area close by where we are. Uh, it's these areas that are just very thin membranes into another dimension. So... I mean, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if whatever spirit that it was that bothered the Bell family, you know, over 200 years ago, is almost 300 now, is uh, still able to, you know, uh, manifest itself to anybody that's on the property. So, I mean, you could have had a direct encounter with the Bell Witch. Well, and there are numerous stories of people that have been in the cave. Uh, the lady who runs the cave tells a story of she was in there by herself one day, uh, was changing some light bulbs or something of that nature and heard it sounded like a somebody beating on a drum in the back of the cave and then it quickly started coming toward her and just got louder and louder and went right past her and she, she freaked out and left the cave and ran up the hill and said she's never gone back in the cave by herself again and other people that have heard children laughing and have felt like they were being touched um, and just a lot of strange things that have appeared in photos and, and uh, people feeling, you know, like dust of cold air uh, blow past them and there's, you know, obviously no wind moving inside the cave. All, all trademarks of these vortexes. Right. And well, and you know, um, Rick and I owned a, a theater where we did live productions and we've been doing The Bell Witch since 98 and um, 1998 and we would take our uh, cast up there and we go to the cave. And uh, about five years ago, uh, we went up, and um, you have to know kind of the, the layout. The cave is at, at the bottom of this kind of a uh, pretty, pretty, well, kind of steep hill, but you kind of go along on the side, and then there's a big drop-off into a, um, I don't know, dry uh, creek bed or something. Well, you have to walk along that to get down to the cave. And um, 
so uh, we were we had just come out of the cave, the whole group of us, and I'm um, I wanted to go up to the car to get something, so I'm kind of walking ahead of the group because they were they were all talking down by the mouth of the cave, and uh, I was about um, halfway up this hill, and. Um, Something it, it, it was it, it was over my right shoulder and whispered really loud to me, Linda. And you know Rick's always doing practical jokes on me and everything. So I looked around because I thought he had he had run up behind me, you know. And I look around and they are way 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 back by the mouth of the cave. Well, I took off for the car up up where the cars and there were other people, you know. And Rick said that uh, the group saw me all of a sudden run, you know. And I tell you, Tim, I didn't say anything to anybody for a long time Mm -hmm. about that. Because when something like that happens to you, it's like, I I was trying to think of every, okay, they must have had a speaker there. You know, and there's no trees right there, you know. It's kind of like an open field uh, along that edge, you know. And you try to think of, 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 of reasons why it what made that happen or what, where it came from other than it was some kind of paranormal or some kind of, you know. Well, I mean, if that was your first experience with the paranormal, um, I mean, it's really hard to to deal with. I mean, because you, you're not sure if you want to repeat it to anybody. Uh, but then usually when you do, you'll find out other people will say, well, I've heard things like that too. <laughs> well, Rick and I are both very sensitive to the spirit, you know, mm-hmm. to what we're Christians and we're, you know, um, and, and just very sensitive, you know, to, to just spiritual things. Um, and I don't know if that's why this kind of thing, you know, these things, but, you know, it was many, many years in between, you know, that, and, and, and I wasn't looking, you know. I was not looking for anything. Nothing's ever happened to us doing all these plays all those years, you know. And then we do the movie, and even filming the movie, nothing happened. And until we started editing, and um, then all kinds of things happened uh, in our home. Uh, you want to tell them about all that, Rick? Well, first of all, we had a fire where I was editing. Oh, yeah. And um, the, but not in we, our home. we had a theater, and, yeah. and uh, it burned, and it was very bizarre. We had a fax machine that had been sitting there plugged in for two years, and it was the only thing left on. We left one day, and it, it caught on fire and, and burned the space. Uh, and everything in the office was burned except for the computer that the the, um, the I was actually editing on. It was very bizarre because there was papers laying on top of the computer. Everything around it was burned, including those papers, and the computer itself was unharmed. Uh, so then I started editing at home, and then very strange things, feeling like you're being watched, strange smells. Uh, we had a cell phone one day that was off that rang uh, for Two or three weeks, for several weeks, it, it, it was very bizarre, mm-hmm. the things, and the computer kept locking up. I took it to get it fixed like three times, and, you know, they say, I don't know why it's doing this, or now there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, and it was just um, uh, constant difficulties, and then one day it just stopped. Being spiritual yourselves, did you consider having uh, the equipment, the, maybe even the film or, or anything related to it, blessed? Oh, we did. Uh, we, we actually, yeah. we, we, and that was how we would usually stop the activity. We would mm-hmm. pray on it, and it got where that was a constant thing. Uh, one thing uh, that happened two or three times was I would be editing, and it'd be working fine, and suddenly the computer would lock up, and I couldn't get it to do anything. And I would start praying, and it would stop. Uh, one time it did that, and for like 30 minutes I tried to get it because I, I had forgot to save, and I had like 10 hours worth of editing. I didn't want to lose, so I didn't want to turn the computer off. 
And so I tried everything to get it done a lot. I put my hands on the screen and started praying, and it suddenly flickered, and then the computer started working fine again. And we had one day in particular where we were having a lot of activity happen, and we and I, I kept I kept telling Rick uh, the vents you know were up in the ceiling where uh, the vent worked for the uh, air conditioning and the heat mm-hmm. and I said you know what Rick you've got to unscrew these there's cameras up there somebody's watching us you know I mean it was very bizarre you, 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 you could feel it coming you, I would you I would felt be felt like people were watching you someone I would was watching you I would be editing and I would I would feel it coming and then I'd start feeling like I was being watched and then the computer would would start acting up. And I'd start smelling strange smells. And so one night, it, the, the day was particularly bad with activity, and we started praying. We prayed for maybe 30 minutes, and yeah. I told Linda when we finished, I said, I feel like whatever it is has been lifted, and it's gone. And we never had any more problems after that. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break here, but one thing I want to ask you before we do that, we're very big into the electronic voice phenomena, uh, which is where spirits can imprint their, their voice onto different media. When you were going through the editing process and going through a lot of this raw footage, did you find any flashes of something that shouldn't have been there or any on the audio track, any sounds that shouldn't have been there? No. And and like Linda had said, when we were actually filming the film, and several people had told us not to do a project on the Bell Witch, That uh, and there are other stories I could tell you where filmmakers have tried to do projects in the past, mm-hmm. and none of them have ever been completed. And uh, when we were actually filming, though, there was nothing bizarre whatsoever, no strange feelings, no, and there's nothing that showed up on the tape. It was probably about two months after we filmed when I was editing before the first thing happened, and then it was just a series of things. No, well, we're going to take that quick break. On the other side, we're going to talk a little bit about the new film, An American Haunting, and some of the discrepancies in that film, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the documentary that you have coming out that further explains you know, the truth that's been obscured a bit in this legend. So we'll be right back after a quick break here on Spooky South Coast. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Put a spell on you. Because of mine. Stop the things you do. Screaming Jay Hawkins, a legend. If you've never heard him, check him out. Believe me, you won't be disappointed. He's one of my idols, and not just because he had like 63 kids either. So, and that's been documented. But speaking of putting spells on people, we are talking with Rick White and Linda Thornton of the film, and Amer- I'm sorry, the Bell Witch Haunting, and we're going to talk to them about the differences and discrepancies between. Their film, which is deeply rooted in the actual you know, history of the case, the actual documentation of the case, and the new film, An American Haunting, which is kind of just, I don't know, a little bit out there. Uh, and they cover themselves by saying that it's based on a true story. 
uh, but it's a real distortion of some of the events that happened and kind of a, uh, you know, turning their back on some of the other facts. So, And what? how did you guys feel when you found out they were making this film? Oh. Well, I, we were okay with finding out they were making the film. I mean, I wasn't surprised. I was actually surprised that Hollywood hadn't made a, a film on it before. And I know a couple of times they there had been attempts to do that. Uh, so I, I wasn't, and, you know, we knew it would probably help our DVD sales, so we were okay with them making the film. But then when we found out that they were making it based on An American Haunting, and I had read the book, and it's funny because I read the book before I wrote the script for the screenplay and uh, went back and read some of the, the Bell Witch books I hadn't read before uh, that weren't based just solely on the um, Ingram book. And knew when I read that book, if Hollywood did it, this is the book that they would, this is the story they would tell. And sure enough, that's so, the one they told. It's a little more sensational. Sensationalism. And now that, the book on American Haunting, if what I've heard is correct, was that the manuscript that was found that was supposedly written by Richard Powell? Yes. But the person who who wrote that book is a fictional writer. And the thing that that bothered me when I read the book, and and that's the thing that bothers me about the film now, is that when you read the book, when you read the first two-thirds of it, read just like the Ingram book, the history of the Bell Witch, Mm -hmm. there's no discrepancies. You know, I mean, he based it on the accounts. Then it takes this twist where they supposedly found a uh, manuscript years later and Richard Powell had written it and they hypnotized Betsy and found out that, that John Bell had molested her and all this. And all of that is just fictionalized uh, writing that the first time that theory even came out was in the 60s. Like Linda said, there was an, an article that was written right. where a uh, psychologist was just theorizing this You know, is what, uh, because of uh, the poltergeist activity, he believes could have been a theory as to why it happened. Well, the, the writer used that and used that fictionalized ending. And but when you read it, when I, I remember when I was reading the book, I thought, "Oh my God! You know, why isn't anybody else in any of other books talking about this manuscript and talking about this? This explains why it happened." Well, then you start realizing, "Oh, wait a minute! He just made this up." Yeah, I mean, from what I understood, at least, you know, in the different online discussions of what's going on. I had heard that the manuscript was actually either discovered or uh, pushed into publication with this other writer from uh, Brent Ratner, who's a screenwriter in Hollywood. Right, but but that's that there is no manuscript that anybody's aware of. You know, any of the historians or people that are in the know. I mean, this is just something that um, uh, conjured it, up. That that was you know that was uh, fictionalized the, the uh, manuscript from uh, Richard Powell and so you know that was the ending they used as an, an explanation for the haunting the, the, the problem with that is it's presented as part of the legend right. and it's not and you know and it's not anything again even the spirit who appeared to hate John Bell never had anything to speak against his character and other than you know a couple of people that had squabbles with him over business deals uh, the accounts of John Bell were all that he was a very righteous and very well-liked man and was very um, uh, prosperous in the church. And so, um, you know, there's no reasoning to think uh, of what, you know, the American haunting, there's no basis for that. Well, and you know what? They've got every right to make a movie any way they want. It's just that the story itself is so fascinating 
on it on its own, you know, on, on the original Ingram book. And uh, I told you, Tim, that um, you know when I went to see the film, I was I had set myself. I, it was going to be a great film, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and and I had set my mind on it. You know, they had the budget to do all kinds of interesting things. And I, I went in, watched it. We went with a group that was in the movie with, you know, that was in the movie. And when I came out, my mouth was open, just fell open. That I thought, oh my God, I was just disappointed in the in the presentation. Well, you not, know? not only that, but Matt and I, Matt Koss and I, had the same reaction when we saw the film. Not only we're not, you know, as as deep into the Bell Witch history as you guys are, but when we were sitting there, it was just. Matt turned to me and he said, wow, what a cop-out ending. Because it just, it comes out of nowhere. It's like, bam, there you go. And, you know, they make the suggestion that, you know, John Bell had molested Betsy and that this whole poltergeist activity was simply a defense mechanism, what they call uh, recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, which is a proven case where there is, uh, you know, it's been proven where there is some, psychokinetic activity around an adolescent female and it will direct itself around other members of the family that may have a conflict with that person but they try to present that as you know just all of a sudden there you go that's why it happened and then at the very end you know they put that the lettering up on the screen that says you know this is one definition of a poltergeist this is the other this is like the possibility of what could happen and it was just it totally ignored other aspects of the case and just took what they needed to it was almost like they had that ending in mind, and they only used the facts from the case that they needed to fit right. that. Right. Well, and that's the thing. There's there's two things about this. One is it's an it's it's an amazing mystery uh, that hundreds of people, if not thousands, experienced at the time of the haunting. A lot of them were very educated. Uh, some of them were detectives. They were newspaper writers. They were people that were doing scientific experiments that were trying to find out what was going on here. There were religious leaders there at the time. And, and nobody could explain it. And so that's one of the things about this is this is amazing mystery that they just quickly summed up, oh, this is what happened because it was a nice Hollywood ending. It had a little twist. And secondly is the thing that made this story so amazing to me when you read the books, and I tell everybody, you know, if you, if you like our movie, read the book, uh, either Fitzhugh's right. books or the, the original uh, Ingram book or Charles Bailey Bell. Uh, it is such an amazing and involved story. It's like no other haunting activity in history. And it has so many different aspects to it. And what made the story so amazing in reading it was not on the screen in their story. You know, the spirit doesn't talk to people. It doesn't uh, repeat sermons. Uh, it doesn't tell people's secrets it you know the, the it doesn't have the different personalities right. uh it it's not nice to lucy and mean to everybody you know to to, to well, uh, different whole, people i mean it, 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 it doesn't even have interactions with the other people the right. character development's not there and, and part but part of what makes the spirit itself so intriguing is that it was experienced by so many people and right. to limit it to just two of the characters in the film right. so that it can fit into this ending at the end of the movie is just a total, you know, like I said before, a bastardization of the facts that have been presented. Right. Well, and that's the thing. You know, I, I what disappointed me was I, I, I would like for people, you know, when, when they see, we have screened our film, they actually teach uh, the Bell Witch in Tennessee history in some of the schools. 
because we are the only state that has a knowledge in our hist- uh, state history records mm-hmm. that the haunting took place. I mean, for, for an, a state historian to actually write about the phenomena and that hundreds of people are experiencing it uh, in a state record gives a lot of legitimacy. Legitim- <laughs> That's right. the word. Uh, to, to the haunting. And. You know, it's actually taught here in school, and we have, we have screenings. They watch the movie. We do a question and answer afterwards, and we tell, you know, I tell students, go read the books right. because in a two-hour movie, we can't go over the amazing amount of accounts and different things that happened. This story is even more amazing than what you just saw. So the whole idea is that we want people to be amazed and stimulated by the story and to find out more like we did. And this this movie, you know, when people see it, I, I don't know that there are many people who are going to leave there and want to say, "Ooh, I want to find out more about it." Exactly. And you know, we're we're running short on time, so we're not going to be able to get into some of the, you know, just the different aspects of the film that make it so completely different than yours. Uh, whereas you guys shot, you know, close to the actual location of where it happened. Uh, I heard this film was shot in Romania. Right. Right. And then, um, you know. The beginning of the film, they try to suggest, because it makes a more interesting part of the story, you know, they go right into the Kate Batts theory that there was a slave sale between Kate Batts and John Bell that went bad, and so she put a curse on John Bell, and that's how it all started. Uh, when actually she had nothing to do with that deal, it was actually uh, Benjamin Batts, a right. distant relative of hers. Right. And then she wouldn't have cared, you know, if the deal went bad. Well, supposedly her and John Bell did have... Uh, disagreements and and a lot of that stemmed from the fact that I think they were just very strong personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually a revival scene in our movie that's on the deleted scenes on our DVD that I actually took from the Ingram book of an account. Uh, but she had a very strange and strong personality and she had very bizarre behavior and John Bell didn't like it, and he was very, uh, a very stern man. And so, you know, they went to church together, and there were, there were times when they had conflicts with each other. And there was one case in particular where she actually sat on one of the parishioners who was coming forward to be saved. And uh, her and John Bell, you know, John Bell um, got confrontational with her, and they had words, and she said something that sounded like she was uttering a spell, you know, said that, that grief will come to you and your family. And so shortly after that, the haunting started. Well, that was the whole reason people started believing that Kate Batts had something to do with it. And so, you know, they, they imply that in the movie as well. Uh, but, you know, that didn't bother me as much as, you know, just creating an ending that has nothing to do. At least Kate Batts had something to do with the history of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and people will have a chance to to see you know their side of the story if they go to the theaters and see an American Haunting. But let's tell people how they can get a hold of a copy of the Bellwitch Haunting. The Bellwitch Haunting is available on our website. It's bellwitchhaunting.com, and there's a, a trailer and information about the legend and, and different uh, things on there. But they can actually get the DB, DV, DVD straight off of the uh, website. And Tim, can I? Um to say one more thing yes, absolutely. is that we people ask us you know do we believe that there was a you know the bell witch and what we think and, and so forth and personally i think something happened mm-hmm. and what we never make fun of this entity or whatever this is or, or or if it's more than one entity we just want whatever this is to be at peace if it wants to be at peace absolutely and you know that's our prayer or that's just our thoughts 
you know, that we just don't make fun. You know, we've and we never have, exactly. and we've we've never judged the situation or yeah. made up, uh, you know, uh, an ending or a theory as to what happened. You know, I, I mean, I've told people what are possibilities, but the the fact is, nobody knows, and nobody probably ever will know. All right, so be sure to check out their website, thebellwitchhaunting.com. We have a link to it on SpookySouthCoast.com, so you can order your own copy of the DVD. And also, that's the website you can use to, to pay attention for when they release the upcoming documentary, which right. is the uh, the Bell... I'm um, sorry, I'm trying to find the exact title here. The Bell Witch, an American Haunting in Search of the Truth. Right. With interviews with historians like Pat Fitzhugh and Tim Henson, as you mentioned before, Tennessee State Rep Gene Davidson, and descendants of the Bell family, Bob Bell, Carney Bell, and Jane Latham. So... Guys, we're just about out of time. We'd like to thank Rick and Linda for joining us. Thank you. We'd certainly like to have you on again in the future to talk more about this case. Sure. And, uh, again, if you want to get in touch with us all week long, SpookySouthCoast.com. You can find our message board, a way to email us. And next week we'll have Matt Moniz's report from Waverly Hills. So we want you to all to stay spooktacular, everybody. Have a good night. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.